Hello, friends, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I am, of course, your host, Luca Parry, and today it's my absolute delight to be speaking with the wonderful Lisa K. Solomon. Lisa designs environments, experiences, and classes that help people expand their futures, adapt to complexities, and build civic fellowship. She's been named one of IXDA's Women of Design. Her work blends imagination with possibility, and she builds the capacity to take the long view when today's problems seem completely overwhelming. Lisa is currently a designer and futurist in residence at the Stanford D School, and she focuses on bridging the disciplines of futures and design thinking, creating experiences like Vote by Design, Presidential Edition, and The Futures Happening to help students learn and practice the skills they don't yet know they need. She's also authored and contributed to many different publications, co-authoring the best-selling books, Moments of Impact, that accelerate change and design a better business, which has been translated into over a dozen languages. Lisa has also created the popular LinkedIn learning courses, leading like a futurist and redesigning how we work for 2021 and continues to do incredibly interesting work in helping leaders productively navigate ambiguity through teachable and learnable practices. Hello, Lisa. It's so lovely to see you. Uh, Luca, what fun to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been, uh, I've been really wanting to have this conversation for so long, Lisa, since we last saw each other in Austin, which seems like a long time ago at South by Southwest. Um, Let's get straight into it because you are such a wonderful learner and communicator. What is one thing that you've been learning recently? (laughs) Uh, Besides humility on a daily basis, uh, what's one (laughs) thing I'm learning? I mean, one thing I'm constantly amazed and why I love my work is I'm amazed at how important and powerful design is. I mean, I feel so Mm. lucky to be a part of the D-School community, to be learning every day with my colleagues and students. Um, To me, and I've had a love affair with design for over 25 years, design is a practice that allows us to be adaptable and flexible and generative and open in the context of ongoing change. I mean, to me, if that isn't a mindset and skill set and a set of practices for this moment, I don't know what is. So design is not new. Uh, Design thinking is not new. But the urgency for design, to me, is more important than ever. Uh, We know that the world is not going to be more simple. We know that the world is not going to tee up easy answers. And yet, and we've had a lot of conversations about this, Mm. most of our formal education guides us towards problem sets that have known answers. We're just practicing the wrong stuff. And things like design still seem like a luxury and nice to have or get classified in the arts. Yeah. And instead, they should be central and we need to practice it more. So so one thing I've been learning again and again is just mm-hmm. how powerful it is when you experience it. Um, and and you do need to experience it. It's it's mm-hmm. I, I love to read about it. I love to absorb it. But experiencing it is really what builds the sense of mastery and craft that I think mm-hmm. all of us can learn. Lisa, that's so wonderful. It also just resonates with so many of the conversations we've had so far on this series of the D-School Spotlight, um, on the wonderful humans that you all are, this, this link between agency and design, you know, when you have a design, when you're as a designer, you have a sense that you can shape the future. And, you know, one thing that you often say, you know, the future doesn't have to be something that happens to us, you know, and all the wonderful work you do kind of bringing futures literacy, futures thinking into design thinking. Take us into one of, yeah, you know, what do you think, what do you feel around the kind of, the ability to shape one's environment. Is that is that the core of design? 
Oh, it's huge. I mean, and it's been fun to really figure out the contours and boundaries and intersections between design and futures thinking. So I've been doing futures thinking for two decades now. I started doing <laughs> planning. Uh, you know, it's amazing, right? Wait, how does the future happen, right? It's one thing we know, right? The future's mm-hmm. going to come. So, you know, and it's a part of the past. So I got very lucky and I stumbled upon a think tank that specialized in the future called Global Business Network. And it was founded by many renowned futurists, include, including Stuart Brand, mm-hmm. started the whole catalog. It's really the sort of epicenter of a lot of enormous trends that have come to be a big part of our culture and zeitgeist, whether it's the whole earth catalog, whether it's being at the forefront of technology and what that was going to be. Now at 85 or so, he is a pioneer of extinction reversal. So just give you a sense, like this, wow. these are big picture people. And uh, Peter Schwartz was another uh, founder who was core to the scenario planning practice at Royal Dutch Shell um, in the 70s. And um, what that experience taught me is that we can't predict the future, um, but we can lean into imagining a range of futures if we design our environments and conversations to allow us to go there, uh, both you know, the range of possible futures, so using our imagination and different kinds of inputs and different processes that allow us to combine disparate thoughts and trends and, and try to bring them to life. Uh, to then sort of looking at the probable futures, right? Like what might the statisticians have to say about the likelihood? And again, not about getting it right, but really about sensitizing and socializing and putting that agency back on us that while the future is unknowable, it doesn't necessarily mean we need to be surprised by it. And and I think in the last few years, we're not just experiencing a global pandemic that took many of us by surprise, not the avian flu people, by the way, no <laughs> surprise there, right? Not to build gates, right? See things yeah. about the future. Yes. Um, but that's just one of these global um, uh, accelerating trends that will impact and continue to impact our daily lives. So, you know, we are experiencing billion dollar natural disasters weekly at this point. Uh, these once in a generation or once in a hundred years events, that's a part of our everyday, right? Global mm-hmm. tensions every day. And so we have to change the way that we think about the future, right? If we don't just want to have to have it happen to us, mm-hmm. um, a different sensibility, uh, a different approach that yes, takes the long view, as you mentioned, but really it's, um, asks us to spend more time looking at the external world, right? The macro environment and spending more time visiting that versus what I think a lot of our training, particularly business training is like, look at the organization, you know, try to understand what are your strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats. That's an important set of uh, conversations and an important analysis, but it's incomplete yeah. because it takes a a very insular view about where you are versus what is really a relationship between what your organization is doing and how the environment is changing. So mm. that's a get very different learning approach. It's an adaptive approach. It's a dynamic and systems approach all of these things that are available to us, but we just really don't practice enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what's really exciting for me in the work at the D school for the last five years is bringing about futures thinking as a literacy that can be taught teaching classes, like inventing the future where we take emerging tech, we learn practices, and then we have the students develop these 50 year utopia and dystopia debates about society's impact on these emerging tech Again, not to predict it, but to start to socialize, to visit the future. Probably the most important thing we do in that capstone part of the class is not say, 
hey, tell tell the dystopian team why they're wrong. But instead we say, what did you learn from the dystopian team? Right. Again, this like we're always learning. The mm-hmm. most important thing we can do is to be learning. That doesn't mean that we don't have opinions. Yeah. It just means we have to be willing to have them challenged. Um, and so that's really exciting to see, first of all, that the D school has gotten really excited about it. And as you mm. know, we've done a lot of work within the K-12, which I'm happy to talk about, about futures thinking and making these practices more available, more accessible, not just in the niche uh, think tanks, right, yeah. of the yeah. universities um, at the leadership level and, uh, mm. and at the classroom level, but really seeing the flip switch for our students when they go from like, wow, you know, I thought other people did that. I get to do that. <laughs> Yes, yeah. you get to do that, right? There, there's a discipline behind it. So that is the best. I mean, that is the best when you see that go off. And there's so many different ways to get there, right? There's not a single way. And it's really fun when you start to see students build upon their own practices. So um, recently, the D School published a wonderful piece that had three students being interviewed who were part of our Inventing the Future class over the last four years that we've taught it. And one of the students said something like, you know, learning is easy, but retaining it is hard. And what's great about this class is that it's so applicable to all of the decisions you're making, both at the personal level, right? Like Mm. what job am I going to take? And also at the more um, broader communal level. And I just thought, okay, that is why we teach. (laughs) That's why we're doing this. Lisa, it's so wonderful to hear you speak about this. I, I just think about my own learning and engagements with the team there. And I have learned so much about futures and the the kind of interesting piece for me is that I began my career in education learning from a culture, working alongside a culture that's got thousands of generations of of learning a history, you know, like the oldest continuing culture in the world in the desert of Australia. And so it's so interesting now to be, you know, thinking very much about the future in this long-term view in a very short-term world um, and kind of the converging economic ecological, educational, you know, challenges, opportunities, possibilities that all sit within that frame. Um, yeah, it's so, it feels like, it feels like it's something that is just such an important foundation in our school systems. And yet young people in traditional models are still, you know, still not being fully alivened perhaps by these tools, by these pieces that they can go out into the world and say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to build this thing. I'm going to, in fact, I'm building myself as I continue forward. Yeah. So I think it happens. I mean, look, I, I so appreciate that. And I, and I do think it happens in different ways. It's just the dots are not connected yet as a discipline. Sure. I mean, I imagine that a lot of traditional subject matters think about the future in their own mm. way, but they're not really bringing it together. Uh, they're not seeing the patterns of what does it mean to use your imagination in science and why that's important or how to think about history as a guide for what may happen in the future, mm. not a uh, as I think Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, yeah. right? I mean, there is no playbook for the future. There's no facts from the future. So we have to use what's available to us and then apply different sensibilities, pattern recognition, other analyses, whether it's systems thinking or, or something else to sort of then open up the range of possibilities for the future. Mm. Um, so I'm excited to see where this lands. I have no doubt that it will uh, and and this is a live conversation we have within the K twelve lab. Like, where does it? Is it a separate discipline? Because yes, it needs to exist. But then there's the practicalities, and maybe you might say this is in some ways a great 
example of the blend of futures thinking and design. I think that there's no question that futures thinking as a discipline um, can and must be included in foundational K-12, not just for you know, special progressive schools. Um, where does it sit? Does it sit within history or social sciences? Is it its own uh, discipline? Does it sit within advisory? Because it's also a personal agency skill, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and we are learning, right? There's some new research that's coming out that says for those people that spend time actively thinking about the future, they're less depressed, they're less anxious. Uh, we'll have to get you that study for your show notes. But yeah, we're really just at the beginning of having social science catch up with, you know, what we know just instinctively is an important skill set, but it'll take some time. Maybe it'll take some mm. time. I mean, look, design thinking is take, t- t- taking some time. I mean, even like I think about the field of behavioral economics, right? Yeah. We need these like huge titans of research, um, Kahneman, Tversky, others, um, Richard Thaler to be like, yes, this is a thing, right? We have biases. So we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> I think um, I can definitely see it as, as emerging as something that's being better understood for the power that it has, you know, even this notion of it's, I think the framing always is different. Enterprise skills is often used in the same, same way. You know, when people are creating a different thing, the idea is you meant to understand the possibilities, the trends, you know, what's, what's going on in a marketplace, a social entrepreneur looks at a social ill and tries to, you know, design a way forward. So yeah, I'm really excited to see that continue to expand, I think, into the into the collective consciousness. I, I to- mean, one of the core things, Luca, just to uh, build on that, that I know yeah. you talk so much about that is so core is our mindset, right? And this may be the hardest thing to crack, that like when you get asked to participate in solving a complex problem, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, mental health crisis or something else, we're still wired to be like, oh, I don't know how to do that. Versus like, as if it's on me to come up with the answer versus who are the 10 people I need to talk to? What are the questions I need to be thinking about? Um, You know, how do I bridge different disciplines, right? These are very different skill sets, right? Requiring curiosity and facilitation and holding space, uh, a willingness to sit in the ambiguity, not like, well, let me just go and, you know, do it myself, right? And I don't know if that's maybe just a uniquely wonderful American thing that we're like, you know, it's just, it's all on us um, versus a communal thing that, you know, and I just think there's so much uh, ancient wisdom to pull yeah. on a communal wisdom if we're, if we're open enough to learn from that. That's really beautiful, Lisa. I, it does make me reflect on you know, our focus on self-actualization as the key, but then, of course, even Maslow in his hierarchy later in his life, as we now know, was really more interested in self-transcendence, which is, okay, great. It's awesome that you know what you want to do, but, you know, how what are we doing together is the more interesting question because nothing exists in a vacuum. You know, the entire world is made up of relationships. And I think we're seeing this language shift as well from the idea of institutions becoming ecosystems, you know, schools becoming learning ecosystems that are centered on whole person, on the learner, on the social, the emotional, and the cognitive convergence of those skills, add the spiritual and the physical, and then we've got a multidimensional model of well-being. And, you know, building from that place, I think it's such an exciting and overdue moment for all of us, including the educators that are working so hard sometimes in these systems that dehumanize them. And I mean, it's just, you know, it, it just can't continue, frankly. And we're seeing educators choose not to continue, particularly in Australian data and around the world, I think. Listen, Luca, uh, you know me well enough to know I'm an optimist. I have a lot of energy. I try to bring positive things forward in both micro moments and larger projects. Uh, I try to do that in my one-on-one relationships. And there are moments when I think, and I'm not proud to say this, but like, 
as a society, and again, maybe it's a very Western, particularly American point of view at this moment, like we hate our children. I mean, it's just like we don't, we're not acting in ways like we love our children. Mm. Um, and you know, I've been a big believer in Robin Krasnard's work, The Good Ancestor. We are yes. acting like terrible ancestors. I have a 16-year-old daughter who is very wise to the world. She's frustrated she can't vote yet. And she's like, what are y'all doing? Like, <laughs> like what? Well, you know, and, 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 you know, the sort of level of despair that I think Gen Z has around, you name it, but certainly starting with climate, that is just looking at this existential threat and saying, you know, you blew it and you don't seem to be getting the memo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thunberg has been obviously very successful in raising awareness, but we're still, we're so far away from where we need to be. And it's again, I mean, the heat waves of the summer across the yes. world, um, you know, it's, it's not like it's a surprise, right? It's not hiding. And yet we can't seem to collectively build on some of those things that you were just saying as a beautiful model. That's, Lisa, take us into, with that as the backdrop, I'd love to you talk to a little bit of the moments of impact work that you've done and the book that you authored. Because from that backdrop, the question then is, well, how do we use our own strategy, our ability to influence our conversation specifically, how to craft a conversation in which we can both shift our internal state our mindset to go all the way down what's our belief system that's underpinning oh it's all too much let's just continue until we fall off the cliff you know it's one one model you know which is the denial model if you look at um yeah you know uh, can we be agents are you pessimist or optimist you know some of that um that work uh what's what's what is it in the way that we design conversations you know which is a psychotechnology really like or a classroom or an experience which you do beautifully what do we need to make sure is is woven into those moments so that there is impact and we do move in this positive direction? Yeah. Thank you for that question, uh, Luca. I'm really proud of that book. It's not new, but it's probably more important than ever. And I wrote that with my colleague, Chris Hertel, who's a demographer, social scientist, uh, from our work at Global Business Network doing scenario planning, when we really had this aha moment that we were designers, but our medium was not necessarily technology or graphic design, but our medium was conversations that these, Mm. in fact, would be designed, in fact, need to be designed. And you know this, because I know you've facilitated all kinds of board meetings and strategic conversations. We really undersell facilitation, right? So we're, and we're not even talking about, you know, design is different than facilitation. You need both, but you know, the number of calls that I would get the day before a board meeting and be like, oh my gosh, everyone's flying in from all over the world and they're going to be here for 10 hours. And can you facilitate? No, no. The answer is, you know, just because like there is no such thing as facilitator pixie dust, right? It's all about the intention, right? To me, great design does two things. It delivers functional utility. And in the case of conversations, we've learned something, right? Or we've gathered knowledge or we've explored new territory, Um, And the other is the emotional engagement part, which is like, we feel something. Now already, you know, these are not things we teach in most, you know, if you're lucky enough to get some kind of training, because it's not mandatory, on meeting, you know, it's usually meeting management, right? How to end on time, how to think about different modalities to, you know, get group consensus or move things. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about How do you create the conditions for people of different expertise and backgrounds to come together and to creatively and collaboratively explore an adaptive challenge? And that, you know, again, you can't predict it. If you predict it, then you'd be presenting, right? Then it's not a conversation. (laughs) But the idea is to go in there with the sense of 
um, again, curiosity, like how can we come together and learn? And one of the things we used to do at Global Business Network, we had, we were ahead of its time. I mean, it's now probably 35 years since its founding. It's really, it's been out of business for at least, I think maybe 10 years at this point. It was bought by a number of different consulting firms, although the practice still lives just in a different format within Deloitte at this point. But we had uh, what we called a community of remarkable people. So these were experts in technology and cultural anthropology and even an astronaut and musician, Brian Eno for Jared Lanier and uh, Mary Catherine Bateson. And we would bring them into these conversations intentionally to be uh, provocateurs, right? Like, you know, because, you know, the people that are around the table, they're typically from the executive team. They're living the same environment. I call it like the Noah's Ark of meeting, like two from compliance and two from marketing and two from, you know, admin or (laughs) operations. And you're having the same conversations. That's not a learning conversation, Mm. right? That's not an expansive conversation. That's often a filled with status and threat conversation. Mm. Um, But you can design it to be differently, right? You can design it to be around a focal question. You can create the conditions where people are not feeling threatened around a big board table, but they're feeling more open. I mean, the D-School is the master of this, the posted capital. You know, you can democratize how people contribute based on uh, the technology that you use, meaning Sharpies and pens and whiteboards. Um, You can um, intentionally drive emotion, fear, or joy, right? To try to discover what's really going on. Uh, And you can use an experience that really moves people to a different place, right? If you haven't learned something, then you probably shouldn't have been in that meeting or conversation. You've just read it on your own. And so this is, again, a totally different way of thinking about what constitutes a moment of impact. And for me, Luca, I mean, I we wrote this, you know, coming from all of the conversations and the scenario planning work. Mm. But when I started about 10 years ago to become an educator myself, almost accidentally out of yeah. the MBA design strategy program at the California College of Arts, I was like blown away that the same process, the same thinking and iterating and wondering about what would make a great strategic conversation also made for a great learning environment. It also made for Blake, you know, so it starts with like, where do I, you know, what's a functional utility? What's the emotional engagement? How do I design backwards? How do I figure out how to package up different ways that we were going to spend our time together? What was the outside input I was going to do? What was the long-term arc? I mean, again, it was so exciting to me. I was like, wait, this could be my job. you know, so yeah. that that has been so, so fun to really come at, you know, being an educator from maybe like the yeah. side door. Yeah. Um, really from a spirit of loving students, right? And loving the transformation that can happen and how much more quickly and effectively it can happen if you really put in the design time. Yeah. So that's so beautifully put. And even as you were describing that entire process, you know, for, for me, that's come from the field of education and sometimes now steps into the fields of design or strategy or leadership. Uh, it's just so, the transfer is so obvious. It's so clear. You know, even some of the principles of, you know, what's the climate? What's the psychological construct that we're using? Totally. Yeah, what's the learning intention? What's our success criteria for our time together? You know, the driving intentionality that should be behind great education is the same behind a good meeting, good strategy day, a good facilitated session. Totally. It's so, and I think it's what a gift that we've got you, you know, in education. So thank you for making that leap to join us. You're you're very sweet. Listen, I'm humbled. I'm humbled. And certainly (laughs) COVID COVID has humbled all of us, you know, like like taking what works in a a real 
in real life and figuring out how to do Zoom. I mean, you know, when we transitioned to Zoom um, for Inventing the Future, which I'm so lucky to teach with Tina Seelig, who is a creativity giant, and mm. Drew Endy is uh, just incredible thought leader in synthetic biology and just an extraordinary human. We're all very centered on the student experience. I mean, we would design it minute by minute, Luca. I mean, you know, who it was like a screenplay, right? Like, where's yeah, the music well. coming from? How are we going to make people feel seen and heard? How are we going to ensure that wow. uh, we we people feel present? I mean, so it's just, just like we're constantly, constantly learning. But you're thinking about, like, what does it feel like for them? What does it feel like for them? And I remember, if you allow me to go down memory lane, when I first started teaching at the California College of Arts, it was such a gift. And my dear friend, Nathan Shedroff, who founded the program said, okay, you're going to get these students on day one of their MBA experience. So again, it's not just day one of my class, day one of an MBA experience was very international group. And I just very much carried that responsibility to say, how do I ground them? How do I allow them to not from the very beginning peacock or posture to your point about psychological safety, help them feel like we're all going to learn together. And so I remember very intentionally bringing in my very dear colleague from my scenario planning days was the first time I saw graphic recording and we would do our intros on this enormous, enormous piece of paper where we would ask them to share a little bit about themselves in a very human way, just so it was very visible, right? And that was a very intentional choice because I knew that I wanted to set the stage for not just my class, but for what would happen from the experiences to go. Or even for example, we would do a, a semester-long project, and I intentionally chose the teams for them because you know that horrible moment, and I don't care how old you are, where you're like, okay, everyone's going to work on a team project. They're going to spend hundreds of hours with this team, and all of a sudden you're like looking around like the seventh <laughs> lunch, like, wait, are we friends? Are we not friends? I just yeah. happened to sit next to you. Now am I obligated to be on your team? And I was like, that's unnecessary friction, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let me look at their backgrounds. Let me help them feel like, Nobody needs to make a decision here on this because it's too high stakes. You're just going to be present for your team. But those are very, very small details. And in moments of impact, we talk about sweating the details because Uh the moment you have something that, and listen, it doesn't mean you can control everything, of course, but it allows them to be in a mode of improvising when the stuff that does go wrong. But, you know, you're really just trying to, um, help it feel congruent because if it's broken, you've broken trust. And that's a much harder thing to repair than the consistency of the choices that you've made and telling people why this is why we did this. Lisa, that's so great. And again, I just think about, you know, actually the convergence between great design and great facilitation, like to your earlier Mm. point. I mean, it really is. And and I think about everyone working in K to 12, but really anyone working anywhere in higher education as you do and learning and development within organizations, you know, this idea that if we need to architect an experience, so you're an experience designer on the one hand, and then we're also a great facilitator, you know, and that that's that's the challenge for all of us is can you plan really beautifully and then can you deliver, can you design and then deliver and do so from a place of, of really love for the other, you know, love for the experience, love for the students that we teach. Um, totally. totally. You know, think- I'll just say a little word about that, um, no. which is – me very early on when I started doing the scenario planning work, I did take a lot of facilitation training, like the technical training that I was talking about earlier. And that's useful. But as you know, that just that's the foundation, right? Yeah. To me, I really grew as a facilitator when I started to learn from improv. And, uh-huh. you know, when I think of improvisational theater as a mechanism to get us more comfortable with the dynamic 
uh, unfolding of what happens in a great meeting yeah. to be in service, right? I mean, there's so many things we could have a whole other podcast on on yeah. improv. I'm, I'm just like I'm a devotee. Yes, and, and I did joke. I did joke with my my mentor on this, Dan Klein. I was like, you know, I learned about improv by reading about it. He's like, that's not how you learn about. It. Um, but it was actually so it was Dan Klein that I first saw that it's just magnificent. But it was really Rob mm. Poynton who teaches at Oxford. I picked up his book; it's a great story from our local bookstore. Luckily, we still have one of those. It just mm. called out. It said, um, uh, "It said do um, do improvise." That was like this tiny little book, wow. and we were about to go on a trip. And uh, I read the whole thing. It was pretty small over the weekend. Underlining, dog earing every page. That mm. happens to me like once a year. I'll find one of those books. And then I'll do what I do, which is I cold email them. I was like, let me tell you why your book really resonated with me. And uh, and again, I think we should put the book in the show notes. And um, and in this book, he has a model that really shifted my thinking on both teaching and facilitation. They're really the same thing where he said, look, there are three practices that every improviser does. Uh, the first thing is that they um, they notice more. Like they are aware, right? They're just aware, right? Because improviser is different than a monologue. You're in dynamic. Mm-hmm. You don't have a script. Mm-hmm. You are, you are, you have to use what, you know, just what you're observing, including the energy of the audience. So in this case, the energy of a classroom. So, so noticing more. And then the second practice is using everything, right? So again, it's like a bit, it's a thing. It's a, so you have to be aware of that. And then the last part, which is of course, so hard for us, hard charging, you know, um, you know, <clears throat> got to get it done, folks, yeah. is you got to let go, right? Like let go of being the smartest, let go of being right, let go of your, your plan, if that's not where yeah. it's going. And in the middle, what he says is, is that these three practices allow you to see everything as an offer. Now, different a little bit than how we teach improv, to be honest, mm-hmm. at the D school where we say, you know, yes, and like everything, you know, yeah, no, he doesn't say that, you know, maybe because he's British and he's a little bit, you know, not <laughs> Look, you don't have to accept all offer. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to block it, but you can be choiceful. But the very fact that you notice it as an offer puts you in a place of agency. Yes. Boy, oh boy. Like, has that sort of set of practices just changed, you know, my whole stance about going into a high stakes, right? Like, wow, if I can just, what, what's the offer there? What's the offer there? Again, we're not being Pollyanna, but we are being resourceful. Yes. Um, we are being creative. We are being adaptive. We are being flexible. And Rob says complexity deserves an improvised response. And he's right. Mm-hmm. Again, like, so imagine you're going into MBA program, you take quant camp. Why are we taking improv camp? Yes. So um, anyway, I'm very passionate. About oh, that. at least and, it's and- so good, you know, and I mean, the, the, the drama teacher in me, you know, cause I did study drama. It was just, is overjoyed. My mom's a drama teacher as well. And so that improvisation, uh, it's been a big part of my life and I actually credit it to yeah, being able to facilitate or speak well in any, in any setting, to be honest, was all the, all the hours on the stage, all the hours, you know, really just having to see everything as an offer and the mindset that can, that can generate underneath that. So you see everything as a possibility, not necessarily as a block. Um, it's such an interesting, yeah. space. and you know, what's great is Dan, Dan Klein, cause I did the boot camp. The, the design thing bootcamp earlier this year he was there it was one of the first things we did was applied improv and it was fantastic there's something he's master he is masterful it's so he's wonderful to, to him yeah he is very very special i mean and i'll even share i know we're running out of time here luca but i do want to talk a little bit about the civics futures work yeah i was going to ask doing. you about that so go for and, it and you know and to me then some ways that is coming out of an offer right so um it was an offer of a of a of political system gone 
and continues to go uh, amok here. It's just unbelievable how fast, you know, we are, we are just, you know, now at a place where even just defining democracy seems to be something that is filled with ambiguity. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, yeah. anyway, so um, at the D schools, you know, we have a lot of uh, creative freedom to create classes that allow students to build design abilities in the context of real life problems. And so leading up to the 2020 election, and I know Luca, you're a big part of this prototype, uh, um, uh, uh, working with a couple of my colleagues from Scenario Planning Days, we created a class called, at the time it was called Designing the President. And the idea was like, if we take a look at 2020 election, you know, do we think that anything from 2016 was fixed? Was there mm -hmm. going to be less money? or less noise, or less famous people yelling at young people and calling them apathetic. No, right? And so the question was design, right? A human-centered practice. What might that offer a young first-time voter in helping them develop agency and confidence and capability, not knowing the answers, but having a set of skills that they could go to? So we created a workshop um, that was really about the offer of how might we reframe how to think about yourself as a voter, not just transactionally voting, but as a voter and what kinds of questions and what kinds of approaches might you take. And it was a very, very powerful uh, experience where we said not, you know, are you a, you know, a Hillary person or a Buttigieg person, but we said, you know, what is the job to be done of the United mm. States president? Like you're a hiring manager, like, oh my gosh, you're 18 years old. And you get this gift of being a hiring manager of the most important position and other positions that are the public service servants of our country. Yeah. And so, you know, it's amazing to be in civics classes and be like, do you know what the president does? And be like, mm, you know, no, you know, it's, right. Because we memorize. We don't really understand. I was like, well, listen, there's a job description. It sits within the Constitution. And, you know, by the way, they're the executive director of a five million person organization that includes the military. And so it just got them to slow down and think, about, well, you know, I really want a leader that's empathetic or decisive or and then we can then use that as then um, data to then take a look at debates, like live debates. Like, what did you hear? What qualities did you hear? So all of a sudden we're building these critical listening skills, these critical thinking skills. And then, as you know, um, because you experienced it, once they sort of got into conversations with people about what mattered to them and why from a much more neutral stance, we thrust them into the future with scenarios. So we developed these scenarios, all of which have come true, including a global pandemic that originated in China. We wrote this course in 2019. I, so it's not like it was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? I, it's, and, you know, or natural disasters or drone strike or hacking. What happens if the election is hacked? And then they had to give a speech um, embodying the principles of uh, the kind of leader that they were looking for. So really it was almost like this prototype that they got to experience in a very personal and transformational way. Um, when the pandemic hit, we we I took it out of the D school and I digitized it all. All of it is freely available um, in a website called Vote by Design. So we wanted to make it more available, mm -hmm. more accessible. And that led to my latest effort that I'm working on because I got a reputation, particularly in the civics world, of like designing stuff that worked. We reached about 10,000 students. And for the last year, it may sound like a leap, but through the lens of an offer, mm. I've been working with the 610 basketball coach to take that same approach of creating student-centered experiences to help empower young people to use their power mm. and their voice beyond themselves, right? Yeah. On behalf of their community. Um, we are working on a project called All Vote, No Play, which is a civic playbook for student athletes. 
And we pick student athletes because they often have a platform much bigger mm-hmm. uh, than, you know, some other students. And honestly, no one's ever talked to them about how to use it. I mean, but we've seen a great history of great sports figures, you know, using their platform for good, whether it's Muhammad Ali, uh, Bill Russell, who recently passed, Billie Jean King, Arthur Ashe, uh, the women's soccer team that, mm-hmm. you know, got equal pay. But but trying to break that down for student athletes to say, look, this is this is what it means to to, you know, use the same kinds of skill you use in your sport on behalf of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, lots to say about it. It's been very exciting, very challenging and very real. I mean, I think the thing about my work and it's one of the reasons why I love being at the D school is that it's not theoretical. It is applied. Yeah. Uh, and, and we are learning and it's not all of it's working, you know, on what we've done a lot of, there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. There's a lot of um, uh, attempts we've made at trying to get uh, coaches to buy in and, you know, that's not where they are. So we just keep coming at it in different ways. So, mm-hmm. so it is a, it is a living example, I think of everything we've been talking about. They said it's so great. It is so inspiring. I, I do want to presence us because I was there when you delivered the first um, design the president workshop. It was wonderful to be part of that prototype and how, I mean, I, I see this as crazy, but maybe you as like the pure futurist among us, like see it as like, well, this is how futures work. Like every scenario that we talked about in 2019 has come to pass, including the pandemic, which I mean, it's kind of remarkable to have had that experience about, well, wow, these are all possible futures and they've all taken place. I mean, but how powerful is that? I know, you know, Luca. I hadn't really looked at them recently because I've moved on to the mm-hmm. to the sports to those scenarios. But I recently had the opportunity to dig them up again. It was it was kind of eerie. Yeah. Um. There there was one about. I mean, this was two years before the January sixth insurrection, and we had one about a proud boy derivative. We called the I think the Glory Boys, um, that had you know really hijacked the election. And again, it's not because we wanted to be right, certainly. And we did push the envelope. And I have a distinct memory of sitting around with five colleagues writing those scenarios. And we each took different scenarios. And I think we allowed ourselves the freedom to say, well, what's happening in in the fringes of today? And how might it unfold? And my colleague, Nancy Murphy, who really wrote the uh, pandemic scenario, was a part of a project probably 10 years ago that was involved with the avian flu. And she worked with Larry. Um, Diamond, or Larry Brilliant, rather, who is one of the like epi- epidemiologists who was like constantly in the early part of the pandemic, but she had already lived through it, right? Like she already had some of that like neural pathways of seeing this unfold. Obviously, it was a different context, slightly different transmission, um, but that was just like something she had already yeah. experienced in ways before, and um, it was just it's just really really interesting you're making me think i should write another article you know probably should because i i mean i'm just it just shows the power of of futures right it's like scenario planning had you take if we took any of those seriously we may have had a different response when they inevitably became i mean the same with us in with bushfires in australia it's not a question of if it's when and so the preparedness piece is like let's play out the scenarios and and do that and the same thing with education systems as well frankly it's like oh what's 2030 what's education 2040 look like what are the scenarios? And then how might we design our preferred future in that space? And what needs to happen today to enable us to walk yeah. that path where maybe we become good ancestors, Lisa, you know? Um, I mean, it would be thing. amazing. And listen, that that doesn't, and then, and then even if we did that, we would still get back to the design question of like, our systems are designed for short-term rewards, right? We yeah, have to pack 
odds. And, you know, the systems are at odds with the future. They just are, you know, and, and so not only is our wiring at odds, right, but like so are our systems. And so it's really, really courageous and brave. And that's why I think so much of my work is about calling out who's doing the future stuff, right? Like calling out when, um, you know, you see the NBA uh, in 2020 turn their arenas into safe polling places. Like that's a futures move right there, right? Mm. That's a futures move. We got to call it. It's not like, yes, it's special, but it's something else, right? Like what can we learn from that? Mm. And uh, even you were just telling me earlier how you're planting trees, you know, <laughs> with your family, right? Like yeah. that's a future, right? You are, you, you may or may not see the tree, uh, depending on what kind they are, but you are you are doing a solid for our future generation. Like, what if we design systems that really rewarded that? Yes. What, what's the, what's the quote? I'm about to paraphrase poorly, Lisa. It's you know, uh, a society starts to become wise when when we plant trees under whose shade we will never sit. You know, something mm. about this piece of that good ancestor, seven generation thinking, the deep now. Right. You know, all of this beautiful understanding. Um, Lisa, I could listen to you forever. You are so wonderful. And and I have learned so much with and from you. And so I really look forward to continuing that. I, I would love for you. Um, oh, yeah, we'll, meet, we'll see. I'll see you at the marathon in New York, first of all. First, um, you know. My knees hold up. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, the, future. right. the future's move. Um, take us, leave us with a pondering here, Lisa. Like we've covered some ground today, not least of all, you know, design, futures, civics, the idea of using your influence, the link between agency, the idea of scenarios. What's something you want to leave us with uh, as we all go go around our world being, you know, shaping the future, but also being shaped by it? Mm, Luca, that's a beautiful question. I mean, I, I think what I, more than anything, Luca, I feel like futures thinking, um, practices, mindsets, they're teachable and learnable. They really are. And that that gives me great hope for the future. So I guess I would say, like, where is a place in your life that, you know, you could sort of turn your frame around and say, and wow, is this happening to me? You know, how might I think differently about the image of the future that I want to bring to life? You know, like where where is there an opportunity for me to to be a shaper versus a reactor? And to, you know, start small, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's a big ask. And I, and I, I, I by no means say that I live my whole life, you know, really embodying the futures thinking. I mean, I'll give you just a great example. I know you asked for a pithy thing, but, um, you know, I have two daughters, they're teenagers. They were eventually going to start driving. You would think I would have thought to have a car available for them when they turned 16 or, you know, something. No, no. You know, so we spent a year, right? Like, and of course the pandemic hit, so there was no cars to be had anyway. But I just think, you know, like, like just reminding ourselves that there are way more opportunities to look at the things that we know to be inevitable and get ahead of it. Mm. And, and see what, like, how can I shape this in a way that actually, you know, creates the kind of future I want to be a part of um, and not to be afraid that just because it hasn't been done before, I mean, that it can't be done. I mean, the the work that we're doing in civic futures, I, the amount of people that would sort of look at me and be like, oh, that's so nice. I was like, nice. In three hours, I turned a, a sort of, you know, unaware voter into someone that's never not going to vote again. Like, yeah. don't, you know, I know the power of this work. You know, I know the power of transformation. So, I just think we have to, you know, keep trying it, even even though it's not necessarily uh, already blueprinted for us. Mm. Oh, Lisa, fantastic! Thank you for joining us for this conversation on the Learning Future podcast, which is really, I mean, at the core, it's about 
what's the emerging future so it's so wonderful to hear from you and thank you too lisa just for doing what you do in the world you know i i continue to be inspired by not just what you do but the quality the kind of perspective with which you do it so lisa it's been wonderful to have you here for a chat Luca, thank you. What a pleasure. And with those kind words, I'm just going to have to put you on my speed dials because that's a future I want to be. <laughs> well, if you ever lose that optimism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's yeah. give me a quick call. Um, Perfect. Wonderful. Thanks, Lisa. We'll see you very soon.